Good morning, GBC, and happy Fourth of July weekend. I'm Larry Olson, one of the elders here. Have you ever felt like you weren't making the difference you wanted at work, in life, at church? Sometimes I feel like I'm just a fringe player for God, not really having much of an impact for his kingdom. And the individual that we'll be talking about this morning might seem to have just had a, a bit part in the Bible. No cute children's rhymes or songs to break this person out like Zacchaeus or Abraham. A person who might easily be overlooked. When I found out that I was going to be given a sermon about the unusable Lydia, two things came to my mind. The first was, man, there's only about four verses in the entire, in the entire Bible that talk about Lydia. And I was wondering, how do you put together a sermon on four verses? And I thought, man, this could be the shortest sermon in GBC history. Now, I'm sorry if you're disappointed, but I found Lydia to be a wonderfully fascinating study. And I'm continually amazed at how God uses his ordinary people for his extraordinary purposes. The other thing that came to my mind was, let's see, Lydia. She's that lady of purple. And this made me smile, because I know another lady who loves purple. And if any of my family are watching this sermon, I know that they're smiling now, too, because they know exactly who I'm talking about. My mom, Elaine Olson, the other lady of purple. My mom, who turned 90 just last year, loves anything purple. For as long as I can remember, it wasn't, what did you get mom for her birthday or Christmas or Mother's Day? It was kind of, what purple item did you find for mom? Purple cards, purple envelopes for purple cards, purple jewelry, purple towels, purple kitchen appliances. It really didn't make much difference so long as it was purple. It actually made gift shopping for mom much easier because you could just cross out anything that wasn't purple. Now, I know that dress in the middle looks a little bit like it's blue, but it's the same dress in the lower left and right, and it is definitely purple. I can guarantee that. <laughs> uh, and that's, her one, that's one of her special purple dresses. And every time she takes a family photo, she has to get into her purple dress. We took her out to dinner in San Francisco once. I think it was for probably her 70th birthday, and everybody in the birthday party had to wear purple. Now, growing up in California, I learned how to drive on our 1964 Chevy pickup. And when my dad purchased the truck, it was sort of a, an ordinary bland red color, and we subsequently had it painted a candy apple red, and then we had it painted this really, really bright um, uh, lime green. And mom liked to drive the truck because at four foot 11 and a half, that, not five foot, four foot 11 and a half, you know, she could sit up kind of high and she could see the road. So mom liked to drive the truck. So one day when she was out of the house, I think she was at a reunion up in San Francisco or, or something, my brother and I, we went out and we rented a commercial sprayer. We bought a gallon of automotive paint. And right there on the driveway at uh, St. Joseph Avenue in Los Altos, California, we taped, primed, and painted that truck metallic purple. Now, it's a little hard to see from the fuzzy photo, but those are genuine puka shells around my neck. I, it was the mid-70s. I was 20 years old. I thought everybody wore puka shells when they're painting their truck. Um, anyway, we might have got a little bit of purple overspray on the driveway, too. We weren't real careful about that. But in any event, purple-loving mom appreciated our efforts. Now, mom wasn't around in the days of Lydia, or so she claims. But if she had been, I can guarantee that Lydia would have even been more successful and wealthy as a purveyor of purple goods. 
And we'll talk about Lydia more in just a moment, but first, would you just bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we praise you for your amazing love for us. Despite what society might think about any individual's usefulness or uselessness, you can use each and every one of us to work for the good of your kingdom. Father, I pray that through your words, you would reveal yourself to us so that we can learn to love you more and more, and that you would also reveal more of ourselves to us so that we can learn to be more obedient to you and live lives which are pleasing to you. And I just thank you for my mother's passion for purple. Amen. Now, Lydia was part of God's sovereign plan to expand his church in its early days. And to find out about Lydia, we need to go to the book of Acts, chapter 16. But before we get to the actual part about Lydia, we need to see what Paul and his companions were doing as they spread the good news in the places they visited. Paul was with Silas, and they were on their second missionary journey. And they had just met a disciple named Timothy in Lystra. Now, Lystra is kind of off, the, off this map, just to the, just to the right there. Um, and they were heading up towards... Uh, Persia, or towards uh, Asia. In verse 7, it tells us when Paul tried to go up to Bithynia, the Spirit of Jesus prevented them from going there. So that was Paul's plan. He was going to head up north into Asia. But the Spirit of Jesus prevented them from going there. We're not told how. Maybe it was bad transportation logistics. Maybe they were repelled by an angry mob. Or it might have been Paul's health issues, that thorn in his side that prevented them from proceeding with his plan. In any event, they were forbidden by the Spirit from going into Asia, and they ended up heading west to the port city of Troas. Now, you might think that Paul would have been upset because the door had been closed to his plans to continue preaching in Asia. But it was in Troas that Paul received the vision, a vision of a Macedonian man begging Paul to travel to Macedonia and help them there. And Paul was faithful and obedient. And he recognized the right answer, God's answer. God continually directed Paul's heart to people in places farther and farther away where the gospel had not yet spread. How about you? Are you upset or angry when it seems like your plans are scuttled, when doors are shut right in front of you? Or are you willing to continue to pray for God's direction in your life? Will you be open to what God might be leading you to do? As we continue into Acts 16, Lydia soon enters God's story. Starting from verse 11, we set sail from Troas and took a straight course to Samothrace, the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered there. So apparently now Luke has joined Paul's group since it says we set sail from uh, Troas, and Luke is the author of Acts. And whenever Paul and his companions arrived in a city, they would first go and look for the synagogue and begin preaching the gospel to the Jews gathered there. However, as they ended up at a city gate by the river and not in a synagogue, this suggests that there were probably not many Jewish men, if any, in Philippi, since the requirement to establish a synagogue was to have at least 10 Jewish men. Instead, Paul heard that there was a group of women who met by the river to pray, and he sought them out. And it is amongst these women 
where we find Lydia. So continuing on in verse 14, a certain woman named Lydia, a worshiper of God, was listening to us. She was from the city of Thyatira and a dealer in purple cloth. The Lord opened her heart to listen eagerly to what was said by Paul. Now, Lydia grew up in Thyatira, probably the daughter of a noble Greek family. Thyatira was known for its purple dyes, called Tyrian purple, royal purple, or imperial purple. And it was the color of royalty, because only the very wealthy could afford clothes dyed purple. The purple dye came from the murex shellfish. It was highly desirable, reddish purple in color, more kind of crimson than purple, actually, and very resistant to fading. However, it was difficult to manufacture and very expensive to produce because it required a great number of shells to make the required quantity of dye. It really was worth more than its weight in gold. And Lydia was a businesswoman who dealt in purple dyes and purple cloth. And as a result, she was very wealthy and achieved the level of prestige and independence that only a very few women ever achieved in her time. So this raises two questions for me. One, how did Lydia, a Gentile, come to be a worshiper of God, a God-fearing woman? And two, how did she end up in Philippi, a Roman colony? Well, she likely gained her faith in God from being in contact with some of the Jewish people living in Thyatira, which is in the Asia Minor province of Lydia, which is probably where she got her name from. She might have moved to Philippi because it was a very lucrative east-west trade route connecting Rome with its eastern provinces and there would probably be less competition in the purple cloth trade there than in Thyatira. Or she may have already made her fortune in the purple cloth business and retired to a nice life in Philippi. We're not really certain how she ended up in Philippi, but she was there, and she was searching for a place to worship the Jewish God. And finding no synagogue, she must have encouraged other women to form a prayer group meeting by the river. Paul's encounter with Lydia reminds me of Philip's meeting with the Ethiopian eunuch a little bit earlier in Acts, in Acts 8, verses 26 to 40. Both Lydia and the eunuch knew about God, but neither of them knew the good news of salvation by faith. They did not know what Christ had done to restore right relationship between God and his people. They did not know that God offered them eternal salvation if they would repent and believe in Jesus. And as Paul spoke to Lydia, the Lord opened her heart, and she accepted Paul's message, God's message, about Jesus and salvation through faith in him. And just as the Spirit directed Paul to Lydia, God used an angel to send Philip to meet the eunuch and proclaim to him the good news about Jesus. No one hears the gospel by accident. God prepares the speakers as well as the hearers. God is active in his people's salvation. He took what Lydia and the eunuch knew about God, and he told them what they needed to know about Jesus by working through Paul and Philip. Lydia and the eunuch were pursued by God, sought out intentionally, just as God pursues each one of us. God closed those paths for, that Paul wanted to take into Asia, and he opened the path to begin spreading the good news in Philippi, in Macedonia, in what would become Europe. But why did he seek out Lydia? Lydia might be considered by many as a fringe character in the Bible, a fringe contributor to God's kingdom. As our summer series topic suggests, culture might consider Lydia to be unusable. 
After all, she was a woman in a patriarchal society. She was single. Whether she was a widow or divorced or always single, we don't know. But she was head of her household, and she was single in a culture that, much like our own, is structured more around couples. And she was rich, a very successful businesswoman. So let's address each of these unusual characteristics in turn. In Paul's days, even though society might have considered women to be inferior, as do some cultures today, that is not God's plan. Genesis 1, 27 and 28 says, So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. And Proverbs 31.30 says, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord will be praised. God deliberately sought out Lydia so that she could become the first Christian convert in Europe. This seemingly ordinary woman would become part of God's extraordinary plan to bring eternal life to his people, just as God did with many other ordinary women of the Bible. And just as Jesus intentionally sought out and engaged the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4, Paul ignored the cultural norms of the time when he and his companions came upon Lydia and the other women praying at the riverbank. Rather than moving on to see if they could find any male worshipers to engage, they sat down with the women and spoke with them and told them about what Jesus had done for them. Lydia was a God-fearing woman who helped other women to love the one true God. When I think of her at the riverbank with those other women praying together and serving God and each other, it caused me to reflect on the amazingly vibrant women's ministry we have here at Groton Bible Chapel. GBC has a strong community of women who are committed to loving God and each other, committed to discipling one another in God's word, committed to helping women grow in their desire to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. If you've ever been here on a Wednesday morning during women's Bible study, that jam-packed parking lot is a great indicator of just how vibrant the women's ministry program is here. So while culture over the years has used gender to disqualify, God gladly uses women to expand his kingdom. He always has and he always will. What about being single like Lydia was? Culture might, be, might seem to be saying that being single is second best, inferior to being in a married relationship. But Paul sets this straight in 1 Corinthians 7 where he discusses the pros and cons of being married or single. In verse 7, he says, I wish that all people were as I am, single. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, being married. Another has that, being single. And in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, Jesus is explaining God's loving design for marriage to his disciples. And as they begin to comprehend God's big picture for marriage, they start to question how they could possibly love their wives as much as God loves them how they could hold fast to their wives, committed to never separate what God had joined together. The challenge of marriage seemed so daunting to them that it caused them to question whether it might be better to not marry at all. And Jesus explained that God does indeed call some people to remain single. And he gave three examples, the last one being those who are single for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. And I think this is where Lydia fits in as a single woman. She was unencumbered with the additional requirements of being a wife, and she was able to devote herself more fully to serving God 
by serving others. It does not appear that she focused on the difficulties or challenges of being single, but she embraced fully how to make the most of the advantage she had of God's gift of singleness to her while she had it. She saw to the spiritual upbringing of her household, she led other women in prayer, and as we'll see, she provided hospitality for Paul and his traveling companions, and she was generous to the growing Christian churches. If you are single, that is a gift from God. And if you are married, that is also a gift from God. Each offers unique challenges which can deepen our relationship with God, enabling us to better serve Him. Now I know that there are some of you listening today who may not feel like they have that gift, who do not feel any special calling to be single in this season of their lives. Yet many faithful servants, just like Lydia, have proved that personal fulfillment does not depend on marital status but on following God's will. The church should be a place where all are treated as family, serving one another and growing together. God's intention for all believers, married or single, is lifelong faithfulness, contentment, and fulfillment. So whether you are currently single or married, God has redeemed you to make a difference, to make an impact for his kingdom. What about the fact that Lydia was rich? a very successful businesswoman. How could being rich possibly make one unusable in God's kingdom? After all, her riches enabled her to live independently. She owned her own home and was head of the household, quite possibly a large one, with servants. She was influential in her community and probably sought out for her opinion on matters. However, it is exactly this degree of affluence that can cause us to place God on the sidelines. Instead of making God our steering wheel, and giving him control of our lives to guide our thoughts, words, and actions, we relegate him to the position of being our spare tire, only to be called upon in cases of emergencies, when we break down. When things are going well for us, we tend to say, hey, it's okay, God, I got it. I'll call you when I need you. In his book, Bury Your Ordinary, author Justin Kendrick reminds us that even though we might not, we might not think so, you know, especially in these inflationary times, Far too often, we are unaware of the simple reality that measured against almost any historical standard, whether you realize it or not, you are rich. We may not feel like we're rich, but if you own a car, if you have access to clean water, if you make more than $20,000 a year, you are amongst the richest 4% of the world's population. And if you make more than $32,400 a year, that lands you in the top 1% of the richest people on planet Earth. He goes on to remind us that our privileged position doesn't make us evil, but it does require a level of awareness and responsibility. According to the scriptures, wealth is not a sin. Wealth comes with certain opportunities, but it also comes with certain dangers. Specifically, the danger of wealth is to become arrogant, trusting in a mirage of self-sufficiency and putting your hope in your money. Wealth can provide a false salvation. When you have money, your heart naturally becomes attached to it. And to learn what Jesus had to say about wealth, we need look no further than the story of the rich young ruler in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 26. This rich young ruler was ostensibly a good person, good at least from an earthly perspective. He told Jesus that he had kept all the commandments, and he asked Jesus what he still lacked, what additional good thing, what good work he must do to obtain eternal life. And Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go. Sell your possessions and give the money to the poor, 
and you will have treasures in heaven. Then come, follow me. And of course, the rich young ruler went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Now, Jesus didn't have to tell the rich young ruler to sell all of his possessions. He could have just instructed him to be a little bit more generous in his giving to the poor. But Jesus knew the ruler's heart and where his priorities were. The rich young ruler had become a slave to his money and refused to follow Jesus and to allow Jesus to set him free. Even though he might be considered good, life, and especially eternal life, is more than just being a good person. He enjoyed his relationship with his money more than he desired a saving relationship with God. As a rich, affluent, and influential businesswoman, Lydia could have found herself in exactly the same position as that rich young ruler, and equally as unusable in God's kingdom. In fact, after witnessing, witnessing Jesus' interaction with the rich young ruler, his disciples wondered how could, a, how could a wealthy person ever hope to be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people this is not possible, but with God all things are possible. It is not our money, influence, or works that secure eternal life from us, but only as a gift from God. A gift from God freely given to all who believe in his amazing love for us and the redeeming sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. God sought out Lydia. He sent Paul to meet her and explain the good news of salvation through faith to her. And he opened her heart to hear and believe what Paul explained to her. God found Lydia useful for his purposes, but not the rich young ruler. Why is that? Well, it would be wonderful to fully comprehend predestination, God's election and call of believers, his divine act of initiating salvation and calling individuals to himself. Just the very thought that God sets his affection on some and not others can pose a very troubling concept. It's, it's difficult theology. It creates a certain tension within our limited understanding as we attempt to discern the ways in the mind of our infinite and holy God. But left to our own desires, we would be hopelessly enslaved to sin, and each one of us is deserving of God's judgment and wrath. But out of his great love and mercy, he calls some to faith. He awakens faith in dead hearts, and we must trust in God's perfect justice, knowing that salvation is God's work from start to finish and his alone. All the glory belongs to him. He alone knows whose hearts are open to receiving his gift of eternal life. Knowing that God is sovereign and in control of salvation should give us the courage to share the good news with others, recognizing that it's God's spirit and not our compelling words that revive dead hearts and open closed minds. We should be bold to share the good news, knowing that God promises that all who seek him with their, own heart, with their whole hearts will find him. And it is God's desire that none should perish. However, God does not force us to love him. We do have a part in salvation. And Lydia did her part. She listened eagerly to what Paul told her and the others. She refused to allow her riches and affluence to become an idol for her. And God was able to use Lydia to serve his people, to further his kingdom. So being rich only degrades our ability to serve God to the degree that we allow our wealth to become an idol to us, to the degree that love of money exceeds our love of God. God loves to use the faithful, humble hearts of those who recognize they are but stewards 
of the riches that God has provided to them. So we've seen how God pursued Lydia by closing some doors and opening other doors for Paul to meet Lydia at the riverbank. It wasn't an accident that those two should meet. We've seen how just because you're a woman or single or rich, that does not preclude you from being a mighty influence in God's kingdom. And it is God and God alone who works salvation in his people. And this brings me to my final point with the story of Lydia. What should be one's proper response to such good news? How should one respond to God's free gift of salvation? Now, Lydia was a worshiper of the one true God, and she knew of his mighty power and of his love for his people. And I can only imagine her stunned amazement and unimaginable joy as Paul proceeded to explain to her about God's plan for the salvation of his, his people, how he sent his son to earth as a baby to live the perfect life, to be the perfect example for us, how Jesus proved that he was indeed the Son of God, how Jesus submitted himself to the humility of being falsely arrested and tried, and how he fully surrendered to his Father's will, submission to the point of death on a cross, of his sacrifice for the sins of the world, our sins, your sins, my sins. And in exchange, Jesus gives us his perfect righteousness so that we can stand blameless before the Father. And then Paul went on to tell Lydia that God raised Jesus from the dead and how that same resurrection power will raise us believers from death to eternal life with the Father. And as if it couldn't get any better, Paul told her how Jesus will return one day to restore heaven and earth to godly perfection. And I'd be willing to bet that Paul told Lydia of his amazing transformation on that road to Damascus, how Jesus took one of the worst of sinners and redeemed him to take God's message to the world. And Paul must also have told her about baptism by the Spirit. So how did Lydia respond to such good news, to God's call? The only reasonable response to such great news is to obey, to repent and believe. When Paul had finished explaining the gospel of salvation by faith to Lydia, her response was the same as that of the Ethiopian eunuch encountered by Philip that I mentioned a little earlier. After Philip proclaimed the good news about Jesus to the eunuch, they soon came upon some water. And the eunuch said, Look, here is some water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? And I'm guessing that Lydia, being there at the riverbank, said something very similar to Paul. She needed a little encouragement to take the next step in obedience and was immediately baptized by the Spirit, as we read in verse 15. When she and her household were baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come and stay at my home. And she prevailed upon us. So not only Lydia was saved that day, but because she shepherded her household spiritually and led them to worship God, because they were likely with her when Paul delivered the gospel message at the riverbank that morning, Lydia's household heard the good news, and they too repented, believed, and were baptized. As with God's servant Joshua, Lydia could boldly proclaim, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, no cute rhymes or songs about Lydia, but I was glad to see that there was Lydia's story is captured in our children's uh, Bible story books. And I was thinking it's hard to figure out who Lydia there, so anyway, one of those guys. Um, but Lydia could proclaim, as for me in my house, we will serve the Lord. And it's likely that the other women who are praying with Lydia also received God's gift of salvation. 
and they became the first converts, Christian converts in Europe. For those of you who have not been baptized yet and you're interested in taking the next step in obedience, we have baptism classes starting next Sunday. You can find more information about the baptism classes either online or just ask out at the welcome desk. So, and then what did Lydia do after being baptized? She immediately persuaded Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke to stay with her. She used the riches that were given to her by God to house and support them, to encourage them in their ministry. So grateful was Lydia for her own salvation that she understood it would be good for the people of Philippi and the people in the surrounding region of Macedonia to have continued access to Paul and his missionary companions as they continued to spread the good news about Jesus Christ. She was looking out not only for Paul, but also for the people in her community. Lydia made tremendous use of her gift of hospitality, fully demonstrating that her life was transformed, that her transformed heart was indeed a generous heart. We don't know exactly how long Paul and his companions stayed in Macedonia, although it was probably quite a while, nor do we know all that they did while they were there. But Acts 16, verses 16 to 39, detail how Paul and Silas drove a demon spirit from a slave girl for which they were dragged before the local magistrate, attacked, flogged, and thrown into jail. And ever the bold evangelists, Paul and Silas, were praying and singing in prison as an earthquake violently shook the prison foundation such that the prison doors were thrown open and the, cha and the prisoners' chains were released. And when the jailer heard of this, he was about to take his own life, for such was the punishment for a jailer if his prisoners escaped. But Paul stopped him and assured him that all of the prisoners were still present. The jailer was so relieved that he inquired of Paul what he must do to be saved. And he listened as Paul and Silas spoke the word of the Lord to him and all his household, and he and his entire family were baptized without delay. This would not have happened uh, save for the hospitality of Lydia, the merchant woman of purple dyes and cloth. And this brings us to the final mention of Lydia in the Bible, Acts 16, verse 40. After leaving the prison, they, Paul and Silas, went to Lydia's home. And when they had seen and encouraged the brothers and sisters there, they departed. So even though this is the last direct mention of Lydia in the Bible, it's not the end of her story. Paul and his companions left Philippi and continued to the west and south, into Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth entering the synagogues and explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Messiah to suffer and rise from the dead. And some of the Jews, many of the devout Greeks, and a few of the leading women were persuaded, and they joined with Paul and Silas. This was made possible in large part due to the financial support that they received from the believers in Philippi, likely from Lydia herself, or as a direct result of her influence. In his letter to the, Philipp to the Philippians, uh, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, Paul reminds the people there, he says, You Philippians indeed know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs more than once. Lydia's obedience, faith, hospitality, and generosity might easily have been overlooked, might seem to be insignificant, Yet God considered her contributions so worthy as to merit, through Luke's writings, to be remembered throughout the remainder of time, wherever and whenever the Bible is taught. So never underestimate 
the value of your obedience, faith, hospitality, and generosity. God notices our every effort. No matter how insignificant it might seem to us, it's never insignificant to him. God can take your faithfulness and make it a legacy for generations to come through your family and the people you know. Now, Satan would love for us to believe that we are insignificant in God's kingdom, that we don't really make a difference. Now, he can't take away our personal salvation because that's secured for us by God. But if he can make you feel like you're unusable for God's purposes, if he can prevent you from delivering the good news of salvation by faith to others, well, that's a win in his book as far as he's concerned. So don't allow Satan to limit your impact for God. God redeems every one of his children so that we can work for his glorious purpose. No one hears the gospel by mistake. God prepares the speakers as well as the hearers. Culture deems people usable according to their looks, their gender, marital status, and their behavior as influenced by their power, rank, and wealth. God judges people usable by how they respond to the truth of his gospel. A wealthy, influential, successful merchant woman of purple, like Lydia, would have been forgotten forever had God not delivered to her his greatest treasure, her true wealth, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Lydia's story in the Bible may be very brief, but it's also very compelling. My challenge is for everyone who's listening to God's message this morning. If you are already a believer, what opportunities will you take to share God's truth in words and deeds this week? Who is your Lydia out there just waiting for you to tell them about Jesus Christ? Remember that those who are currently rejecting God's word need Christians to love them, and no one hears the gospel by accident. For those of you who do not know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior yet, please don't leave today before speaking to me or one of the other elders or one of the church staff. Just as Paul educated Lydia, we'd love to tell you about the good news about salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Lydia, the merchant woman of purple. We thank you for her example of obedience and how she desired to serve you by serving others. Help us to be alert for the Lydias in our lives, those who need to hear the complete message of your love for your people, and help us to be bold in proclaiming your good news. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Thank you.